0: Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promised to peep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan.
1: Hello, my little babies. We're back. Oh, hello. I know you missed us, but we're here. We're here, and you're, you're here. We're all here on the movie show with Joel and Ryan. I am Joel.
2: And I'm Ryan.
1: I know. We kind of surprised you last week by not having a show. We were planning on a show. We were. But life happens. I got done, got myself a cold. And Ryan?
2: Best laid Ryan. plans.
1: Yep. Ryan was laid up a little bit, too. But I'm assuming Ryan that uh, that that allowed you to probably get some good uh, movie watching time in. Anything, yeah, a little uh... bit.
2: I got some, but the mostly I've been trying to get the ants out of here.
1: Oh, it is ant season.
2: Yeah, I left a that... toenail for the ants to get all excited about, and they came and <laughs> and, and normally you get rid of the thing that they want, and they pretty much go away, but. Yeah, wherever they came from, it's probably really cold there still, and so they just kind of keep hanging around. And
1: well, yeah, we had that we had that little warm stretch uh, here in Minnesota that helped melt a lot of the snow and helped wake up a lot of the uh, um, a lot of the insects and stuff. And then it got really cold again. And then they were like, "Hey, uh, let's
2: go inside." And uh, <laughs> so... I was asked that yeah. in a in a business meeting once. Somebody uh manager of like customer service manager had this little box of cards that had all these little get to know you weird questions in them. Yeah. <clears throat> and pulled out one of those and was like, what is your favorite day of the year? And I was like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> in a way that's like an easy one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, well, what's the day wh- when it freezes and all the bugs die? yep
1: yeah that's a big big time day
2: it is it's just the best it's just the best day and and there and i and i just so i don't like but you know ants okay a box elder bug i'm very scared of bugs but but these sorts of everyday things like I, i i can relax a little bit about
1: yeah, these are the nuisance bugs. Yeah, yeah,
2: and they, so they're not that big. They're like flies, mosquitoes. I'm not scared of those. I don't like any of them, but I don't. I'm not scared right. of them. Um, you know, you get into centipedes and crickets and stuff, right. and I'm actually scared of those. I'm genuinely, my heart races, and, and I'm not yeah. so big a wuss that I can't deal with them, but I, I, I just, I freak out. My whole body wakes up. Hmm. So ants are okay. And normally, I would welcome our new ant overlords, but. <laughs> It's just, it's too soon, you know, it's just, it's really, are you, uh,
1: when you get, when you get bit by a mosquito, uh, do you like, do you itch a lot? Do you swell up? Do you do any, are you, you know, mildly. mildly.
2: why do some people not react to mosquito bites?
1: Yeah. Jennifer, my wife doesn't react at all. She's like, nah, it's not, you know, like doesn't itch at all. I no. go nuts. My son goes nuts. We, you know, we're like, yeah. just oh, it's just so it's brutal. Oh, I hate it. So yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't say cool I go too.
2: nuts, but they, little mounds, and you know, they love my head. I can't go oh, out in the summer yeah. anymore, like without a hat on, which I'm not yeah. a hat guy, but I just oh.
1: That's that's a, maybe that's a whole show topic on movie show with Joel and Ryan is we'll talk about the fact that we have to wear hats and neither of us are hat people. <laughs> right. uh Maybe we'll do a whole show on top hats, best hats, top five hats in movies, and and could we pull them off?
2: Or maybe we could do we could put that category in a show where we do a show about categories that we didn't do.
1: Mm, possibly. Maybe I'll add that to the to the master list of there's things some, that we... Sometimes there's some pretty think cool hats
2: out there in movie dumb, truly. But yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I gotta wear a hat because of the mosquitoes, because on my head, it's like anything, if you cut yourself on your head, it doesn't hurt you that bad, but it just bleeds and bleeds and bleeds, because it's, mm-hmm. you know... So, yes, uh, on my head, it's that is the exception. I hate getting bit by a mosquito on my head, and they... Right. They just, they come from miles around when they see my little light bulb head come out at night. Yeah. So I I, uh,
1: I sort of, yeah, I I feel the same way. They're just like, oh, Trolls out. Yay. Meals. (laughs) Um, Look at his, his pale German skin. Oh, look at that. We can. Oh, he, I, I have a, you know, and okay, I have like, I have a lot of leg hair. And so it, it does provide an obstacle like they're like, Oh, I'm gonna get to that skin.
2: Well, oh, you notice that.
1: Yeah, and then I, that does give me a little bit of time. Little, sometimes it gives me a little barrier. Um, all right, well, uh, this is the hard-hitting news that you're going to get on Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. I hope
2: you enjoyed we that. Know
1: you, we know you missed that last week. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, so this week, we are going to uh, do ourselves a countdown. Uh, we are going to be looking at the movie, uh, the movies, of director Peter Hyams.
2: Yeah. Who's Peter Hyams, you say? He's just oh, a Oh, Peter Hyams. He's a work a day director. We're going to do some series like we it's easy to do Michael Mann cuz there's so much to say about Yeah. His thematic richness and his like his way of telling the kind of like I I always say you can tell an artist because they tell the same story over and over and over again. And he's one of those guys. Peter though, kind of but Peter's just a yeah. guy who made movies, and I made a little list of them that we're going to explore some of these guys, because that a lot of these movies, some of them will show up on this list or that. I make a confession. Um, if you liked our Halloween uh, double feature episode with Rob and Michael, we're going to do another one of those here in a few weeks. few weeks, we got to watch the movies, so it'll take a little time <laughs> to get together. But um but there, my two movies in that are going to be Peter Hyam's movies, so I'm kind of doubling up. I'm going to let them react to a couple on this list. So mm-hmm. there's a little... But he's a guy whose films, I feel like, have been with me my whole life. There's other guys, too. John Badham, uh Joseph Rubin. You know, they, they, I, ha, I they got all the films of these people. And mm-hmm. the thing I think that set them apart, because they're not bad filmmakers, they're really good ones in a way. Peter's a really, really talented guy. But he just, it's its not, there's not a lot of high art on this list anywhere, even though there's some really fine entertainment, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, we, we, you do all the big heavy hitters, I mean, we haven't done them all, there's a ton out there, but the idea mm-hmm. was to go through filmmakers of our lifetimes that were kind of slick commercial filmmakers but still have you know still put quite a thing together and he, I, mm. I he's a great one to start with cuz he he's a name most people have no idea about and he's and yet when you when you start listing the movies you know i uh
1: i um i do love to me this quote that he has um it 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 kind of sums up like probably what kind of like cool kind of like cool chill guy he is Mm -hmm. uh is he says like uh oj simpson was in capricorn one robert blake was in busting i've said many times some people have afi lifetime achievements award Uh, some people have multiple oscars my bit of trivia is that i've made two films with two leading men who were subsequently tried for first degree murder of their wives
2: and one of them was convicted (laughs) even
1: yeah and i'm Um... like uh and i'm like you know you kind of you kind of just gotta, you know. He's like, "Yeah, well,
2: that's, right. that was the that's what those movies I made." I did. Yep. It's funny. We'll get we'll get to OJ right away, but OJ was foisted upon him. He didn't want OJ. He, <laughs> right. He had other ideas for that part, but but and we're not even going to talk about busting. But before we talk about any no, of them, no, we're we can mention it. Busting. We've mentioned it now. We'll mention it again. But with, before we do any of that, we got to play the countdown, don't we? Uh-
1: Let's hit a countdown. Here we go. Countdown of Peter Hyams. Ten seconds. Nine. Nine. Eight. 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 Seven. Seven. Six. 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 Five. 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 Four. Three. 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 Two. Two.
2: One. One. So. There you go. Peter's career really does start with Busting, written and directed by. Peter Hyams is a writer. Most directors who show in this category, uh, filmmakers aren't writers, typically. Commercial directors tend to be really good storytellers, but they typically leave the writing to others. Um, Busting was written and directed by him. It was essentially his breakup picture. It has, as you say... Uh, Robert Blake in it. He's the sidekick to Elliot Gould. They both play cops who go off the reservation and go catch the guy that that they've been told, yep. "Hey, you cops, you're off the case," you know, or whatever. And then they're like, "You're off your case, chief." And they just go, "You know, I've never seen it, so I'm just kind of making this up." But that's the basic premise assume. of the movie. We've seen this story before.
1: If Elliot Gould's in it, then then you know they're like, "You're off your case, you're off your case, chief." And then Elliot Gould, like, will do a, like a
2: <laughs>
1: one of those looks that yeah, he's
2: really good at. Yeah, Elliot's great, and we're going to get to him in a second too, because uh, he's an actor I didn't really like because I think he's he's. he's... There's a, the person that is Elliot Gould is buried in all this blah, blah, blah all the time. And I'm, I'm always struggling to find him, but you know, what's fun is that when he peeks through, it's really exciting. So, and I've seen a couple of his better yep. films lately. We talked about one of them back in the seventies episode, the long good night. That's a really, mm-hmm. really good movie with a really, really strong performance. <sighs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: And, um, but I think knowing Peter, just, I don't want to judge busting, but cause I haven't seen it. It's out on. Blu-ray now, so I should pick it up before it goes out of print and add it to my Hyams collection. But uh, it 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 started things off for him, and it started a lot of relationships with a couple of different actors, and 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 knowing his writing, it's very righty. Like, it's very movie-ish. It's very movie-worshipful in its dialogue and in its delivery. It's telling a rather cliched idea of a story. And but instead of... Being ashamed of it or trying to hide that it's derivative, it's embracing mm-hmm. all that stuff in every scene would be my guess. and The next two films he did, I can't remember the name of the second one. The third one is Peeping.
1: Yeah, um, I got uh, it's uh, Our Time,
2: Our Time, and Peeping.
1: And but, yeah, it's uh, that one was uh, Pamela Sue Martin, Parker Stevenson, Betsy Slade. It genuinely sounds
2: good—a a period romance in the fifties mm-hmm. where, if you know. If, if, Forbidden Romance, such as a it It's not Romeo Massa- and Juliet, but
1: the story is set at a Massachusetts school for girls in the 50s.
2: Pamela mm-hmm. Sue Martin and Parker Stevenson in 1975 or whatever. And that's top stuff. They would have been yep. really good in a story like that. Uh
1: and, was, uh, Parker yeah. and was then, in uh a
2: separate piece, I want to say, which he's really good And We think of him as like mm-hmm. one of the Hardy Boys, and he was he was originally one of the two stars of Baywatch. Sorry the Baywatch keeps coming up, but it keeps being relevant, folks, and I won't shy yeah, you away know, from it. So he's this Baywatch guy, is you know? gonna Baywatch, yeah. He was the bad guy in Stroker Ace. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you want from me? I'm Ryan, well, you know. Yeah, know Parker had stuff. a good Parker Stevenson's good cool. Pamela Sue Martin's awesome. She was she was another cool things, too. Um and Peeper, I don't know much about that, but it's got a funny premise, I believe.
1: Yeah, well, Peeper uh, starred Michael Caine, which means that you get to do your Michael
2: Caine. I don't remember anything about Peeper. <laughs> but um, I'm sure. Here's here's the thing.
1: Good. Peeper was a box uh, peeper but was such a box office failure that it jeopardized Haim's career and almost cost him his funding for his next film. Um,
2: yeah, so he which is uh, where he really hit the scene, I think. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is where our list starts. Indeed
1: it do. And then so we're going to take a take a nice trip back to 1977. Remember 1977, Ryan?
2: yes very well, uh,
1: very yeah, well the, we had we have moved on from the uh the the space race to the moon and now we are gonna go space race to Mars this one this one appeared in your uh, conspiracy theory uh episode too yeah uh, as an I also ran correctly. but
2: we never even mentioned it in that we just so much conspiracies going on that I kind of forgot to say it or if I did I, I only mentioned it by name mm-hmm. um it's it's Capricorn 1. Yeah? Sorry if I yep. ruined like, uh, you were going to say that in a special way. No, no.
1: No, no. I was uh, I was trying to I was uh too busy thinking about how I could help you there in case your
2: hiccups got worse. So
1: <laughs> I, I apologize for I can't podcast and drink there. soda
2: at the t- same time without getting hiccups.
1: <laughs> no, I, I apologize. I was like how do I help him? How do I help him? And then I realized no um, one's talking.
2: <laughs> and and you no one can help me when it comes to the yep. hiccups. They just, you can try um, and scare me, but unless you're like a, <laughs> a, a oversized bug or whatever, it ain't going to work. But it's, it's yeah. okay. We can all live with me having a few hiccups during the show. Um, right? Uh, so, all right. Well, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah no, 77. No, I, I, um, yep. I, I can't so, yeah, tell so you. I'm, this really is, uh, this is the quintessential. I'm sorry that we're getting it out of the way so soon because it'd be fun if we could build up to this. But this right. is the quintessential Peter Hyam script. It, it's it's an ensemble of actors who all speak with his same voice, <laughs> truly. Yep. And yep. it's it's packed to the rafters with funny lines and weird drawn out speeches that when they get to finally get to someplace obvious, this is a staple of his writing. I don't I'm yeah. making it sound bad, but it is very, very entertaining. Um, it, it was is.
1: just on the other night, uh, and I watched it, and it was uh, it was it was it was really fun.
2: It was the it's most a, successful it, independent film of 1977. It's like came in like 11 or 12 on the year I want to say, but mm-hmm. it was independently financed by uh, Sir Lou Grade or later Lord Grade. Uh, Lou Grade was this British guy who had a lot of money and sort of financed these films, and. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought him up on the show before my favorite line of his ever because all these old producers all have a famous, I think have a famous line that sort of define who they are but Lou Grades is and it's in reference to his big box office bomb in 1980 uh, Clive Cussler's Raise the Titanic and he's his, his, oh, when he yeah. asked about it he said, it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> uh, a good line but
2: you, uh, you, you, If you're a big movie fan You might even remember the logo ITC um, mm-hmm. uh, This was distributed by Avco Embassy I get really excited about these sorts of Minutia so sorry about that But it's, it's a very fun um, Conspiracy film But it's a really really fun one It shares three actors That were all in uh, All the President's Men, a completely tonally right. different <laughs> conspiracy film about a real very event. much so, yeah. But yeah. it has Robert. And it, it plays in it and, off of
1: that, yeah.
2: And Hal, uh, Hal Holbrook. Yeah, Hal Holbrook, and at least one other person too. And I'm not thinking of who they are.
1: Uh, let me see if I can uh, pull it here. Let's see Holbrook I uh, David Houston,
2: I uh, do Doyle. God, but it's just it's the story about a mission to Mars, basically. that Capricorn mm-hmm. One. That's the name of the module that's the space module that's going to Mars. It's a clever yeah, here's, name. The little,
1: here's the little one sentence here when uh, when the first manned flight to Mars is deemed unsafe and scrubbed on the launch pad, anxious authorities must scramble to save face and retain their funding. And so an unthinkable plot to fake the mission is hatched,
2: which is great
1: because also, you know, in 69, when we went to the moon, there were tons of people, you know, that like in the early seventies, that's when the traction hit of like, we didn't actually go to the moon. We didn't actually go to the moon.
2: In in the sixties, there was a, there was the idea was hatched that it might be fake, but Within the counterculture of the 60s, but it really didn't become a conspiracy that was very, very famous until right around this time at Post Watergate, where yep. just everything's fake. Everything's a lie. Everything's a conspiracy. So it's a great, and he was trying to tell this story for years. W- what would it take? Why would it happen? You know what I mean? Um mm-hmm and what would be the consequences of a plot like that going wrong for the people involved that's the story and it it runs out all those ideas in in really great ways so it's an extremely successful film um but yeah it's you know they're up in the capsule and they're getting ready and everyone the the head of NASA and the uh, vice president or whatever, all sitting in the stands watching, you know, Mm -hmm. and then this, then this dude just walks up, knocks on the window, wearing a suit or whatever. And he's like, (laughs) uh, gentlemen, I need you to leave the module immediately. (laughs) And they (laughs) rush them off in a private jet to some place in the middle of Nevada or New Mexico or something. and, Mm -hmm. and, Put them in a little this little conference room where they're standing around waiting. The three astronauts are played by uh, really well by James Brolin, Sam Waterston, and uh, OJ Simpson. And it's I don't know what to say. And then they they basically are told it's in a long long monologue that takes forever to get to the point by Hal Holbrook. They're told the story of the compromises that happening in business and stuff and, Mm -hmm. and the powers that be when it comes to projects of this sort of money, wanting to, uh, wanting to see this thing exist, even though it's not safe to send them up there. There's no, there's there's a very bad chance that the life support system on their spacecraft is going to fail. It was made by a yep. company called Con Amalgamate, by the way, which we'll talk about those guys <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, they keep coming up in these films, which is really fun. Uh, so, so they, they're told they have to fake it. And he's like, well, what if we say no? And Hal's got this great line. Don't say no.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't say no.
2: They're basically threatening their families. They know where your families mm-hmm. are. Hey, it's not me. I'm just a messenger, but you know, is so great in it. I mean, he's, he elevates this material cause he's, yeah, yeah, he, he
1: really does. We, we associate
2: yeah. him with so much better. I, I hate to say, I'm sorry, Peter, but really better writing. <laughs> and so when he comes in and he says all this corny stuff and he takes forever to get to the point, he's captivating and he's fun to listen to. And I mean, that's what makes the thing work. Uh, elsewhere, Elliot Gould plays a down-on-his-luck investigative reporter who finds conspiracies everywhere he looks. And mm-hmm. him and Karen Black, she's a fellow reporter who he has affairs with off and on. And, and their little lingo, their little old-school, I don't know what you want to call it, like... Um, sort of like Bogart Hepburn's or maybe Tracy Hepburn's better closer. Yeah. Either way, they have this, they have this way they, they talk, which is super fun. Um, these guys all have families. It's a big ensemble cast. Uh, it has a boiler to say too much about it, but it has my favorite performance by Telly Savalas ever in a film. (laughs) Yeah. He is gloriously awesome in it.
1: It this movie has got uh, a, a just a terrific, a terrific cast of of like people who were I mean uh, who were just doing like great work throughout the seventies and, and into the eighties. Uh, you know, from Hal Holbert to Telly Savalas, David Doyle, David Huddleston. David, um, David Huddleston yeah,
2: is, is as good as I've ever seen him in anything. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: James Brolin is really great at. Um, at just that at at, at the, the the gravity like uh, putting gravity into the situation yeah. um and, and taking you know there he's never winking at anything um there's never there, there's i mean this isn't a comedy but it i mean it's really uh, it's just fun. And he, it just, he, he is doing some heavy lifting and to just make the, well, make he the has to, as, because the, yeah.
2: you get nothing from Holbrook. He's, he talks a lot, but he's, you know, and yeah. OJ hardly has any lines to say. And Sam Watterson's a total smart ass. He never says any, he's the opposite. Yep. He never says anything yep. serious in the whole movie there's that's this great moment where they just sit there around
1: and go eyebrows he gets to just have eyebrows going what are we doing <laughs> and
2: that's
1: there's and a that's great just, moment where
2: they're all sitting around waiting for something and something was supposed to happen and i don't want like i say i don't want to get too into the details of it but they're they're waiting and and josh brolin just so out of nowhere says says something's gone you know something's gone wrong and mm-hmm. then they're like, What? What could it be? What you know, he was what would have gone wrong? And he's like, We're dead. And Watterson's reaction is, geez, and I was such a terrific guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David Help. Doyle, who's most famous for playing Bosley in the Charlie's oh, yeah. Angels, mm-hmm. he plays Elliot Gould's editor. That's, you know, if you know the reporter editor relationship and these things. You've seen this before. They have these huge arguments that are extremely entertaining. You know, Gould's like, what's, what's, it with you? You never support anything I say. I saw a movie once where the editor says, all right, kid, you can chase this down. You got 48 hours, but you better, you know, get the story or your butt's on the line or whatever. And Doyle's like, okay, all right, you want to do it like that? Well, then it's 24 hours. I saw that movie too, and it was 24 <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah it's fun it's really really fun and stuff even though it's there is life and death involved you know mm-hmm. and it's so there's a lot at stake in it but it's i just really really like it robert waldron's great and it too he's always good he plays the he plays the only nerd at nasa who's like hey wait a minute these this signals seem to be coming from new mexico <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they make it more. They dress it up yeah. in more science-iness than that, but that's essentially yep. what he discovers. And the fake, yeah, the faked uh, mission is really, really pulled off visually and believably in a way that you could believe that we would all be snookered by it, which is a big task that the film has to make. But mm-hmm. what it really is, ultimately, is his chase movie that is buoyant full of humor and it has a couple of sequences it has what was at the time and may still be to this day you guys can be the judge it has the 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 greatest kind of most dangerous aerial dogfight of all time at the end that's the big enemy. and it, it is incredible matter of fact the guy who plies the biplane in those stunt sequences died in his next movie because he was an absolute madman um and that sequence because this was an independent film and because it was owned by some people the distribution rights it was that sequence was sold to like the fall guy and this thing and that so these this. Yep this bits of this little chase, like keeps showing up in other people's work. There's another great <laughs> sequence where the old, and I, this wasn't a very common thing, believe it or not, but this is kind of where it started, where the, it, the cliche of it started, but there's a sequence where um, they cut the brakes on Elliot Gould's Mustang. And he goes on one of those drives, you know, I can't, where he's, yep, yeah, I can't where he's stop, completely yeah. out of control and, that sequence too showed up in like all the late seventies and early eighties TV shows with just a different Mm -hmm. actor inserted into the, into the inserts with the (laughs) car. Yep. So it's a movie that keeps on getting
1: it. Yep. The shot down the leg Mm. of him stomping on the brakes without, with nothing. That incredible
2: shot of the Mustang flying off the edge of the bridge and, and almost by accident hitting the cement barrier. Like it, it comes right up to it before it hits the water it that was not yep. supposed to go that far but again <laughs> the stunt guy was like here we go yep anyway no i to my knowledge nobody was harmed during the making of Capricorn 1 <laughs> but it it's exciting it's edge of your seat stuff and yet it's 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 fun and surfacey enough that you really can just kick back and en- enjoy it it's um, very famously, you know, Peter, under, I think, understood this is where my this is where my career was made with this film. You know, he said a, yeah, yeah. a different producer came up to him after a screening and kind of well, even while the movie was playing. And he's like, this is going to make you really, really popular. You know, I hope you're I hope you're ready for that is what he said, mm-hmm. to me, which mm-hmm. which he said was sort of loaded. It was kind of a double meaning. He was ready for it. He had all these movies he wanted to make, but it's uh. When you go from being some guy that the studios and the big time producers ignore to somebody who they they bring you under their thumb, particularly in this era, it, it is a different thing and a different way that you have to operate. So, yeah, Capricorn One's a blast, man. If you haven't seen it and you like '70s cinema or you like that sort of that sort of old old school movie dialogue, I mean, it's just packed to the rafters with it. It's really really fun.
1: Yeah, Brenda Vaccaro, <clears throat> Karen Black. Brenda Vicaro uh, again. I, yeah, I James mentioned Karen sicking. Black.
2: Brenda Vicaro is yeah. outstanding in this film. She's always really good, but it, she's really, really good in this because she just she has she has to through all that zany talk. She plays Josh Brolin's wife or James Brolin's wife. Um. It. She, you know, she, she has to, she's got to find a person there. It's really important. They don't all have to do that. So Waterston doesn't really have to do it, but mm-hmm. some, but somebody, some of these guys have to pull that off or there's not a lot of humanity here. Um, and Gould does it in some great moments and she does it. I think most of all, and as you say, Brolin really, he's the perfect cause he's such a, he's really at. He's at the top of his sort of good-looking guy leading man sort of thing yeah. in this. He's also it also film features the the two main characters are are a uh, husband and former husband of Barbara Streisand.
1: Well, there you go. There you go. Uh um, so that little all shot right. of
2: them running in slow motion at the end is would be something of a nightmare for her, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a joyous right. moment of victory for the rest of us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so next up, a couple years later, he gets a you know he comes out with his uh, his follow up film, um, and he is working with Harrison Ford on a movie called Hanover Street.
2: Harrison Ford last second replacement. Actually, both the leads in this film were brought in when the sets were pretty much already built. Hmm. Um, this was supposed to be Sarah Miles and Chris Christopherson, but Christopherson backed out, and when he backed out, Miles also quit. So, so this was literally who is, who can we get? Okay, because in nineteen, yeah, it's is it seventy eight that this came out late uh, in seventy. This is seventy,
1: yeah, seventy nine is what it's uh, okay. what it's. So 10, guys, yeah.
2: early in seventy nine. So uh, the 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 guy who. And they were lucky to get him, Harrison Ford, obviously, right? But this is a Harrison mm-hmm. Ford movie that not many of you have seen, I bet. It, it's Peter's, it's a big budget film. It's a World War II romance. He wanted to tell <clears throat> the movie it most resembles or most rips off, depending on your point of view, is yeah. Waterloo Bridge. It also has the name of a place as a title. You know, he's making an homage to this kind of film—the the the romantic sweepingness of war that, like, two people get caught up in and and fall in love with each other, and of course that can that leads to all kinds of complications and uh, both heroic and tragic. Uh, what is there a thingy yeah i mean it's
1: just real quick uh margaret is a nurse in england during world war ii and married to a secret agent things get complicated when she falls for david
2: an american pilot and he's a b12 pilot and this and not memphis bell is typically the film that most b12 pilots or b12 aficionados love it's their favorite b12 movie which is weird uh, if you know Memphis Belle and you know the kind of plane I'm talking about, it's a, it's a bomber plane. It's mm-hmm. got a very specific set of like crew members, um, of which are cast with some really cool actors. Richard Masur is the nose gunner. Um, Michael Sachs is the co-pilot. Michael Sachs is a great actor. This is sort of getting towards the end of it. He's about to hang up the acting, uh, cleats in the next couple films, but he's, he's kind of perfect to play off of Harrison. Um, and they're going on all these successful missions and stuff. And and they meet in the street. You know, It's hard to explain their meeting. I, I can't even... I don't, it's absolutely corny. It's the corniest thing in the film. The film is unabashedly romantic. So you got that. Harrison took the role at the last second. Without really doing... Even in this era. Doing his usual... Hemming and hawing over it because no one had asked him to play a romantic lead. So he'd been acting for twelve years or whatever, and no one had ever said, "Oh, you know, you come here and this this lovely woman will fall in love with you, and the whole audience will fall in love with you." It it features right. his first on-screen kiss with Leslie Ann Down, which you know by this point you'd think he'd have done that once or twice. He did not. Yeah, Weird. so that's why he agreed to do it. The uh, the nurse in question isn't just some nurse. She's a, she's the wife of a of a you know very high class uh, member of the aristocracy in England. Who, as Joel pointed out, is also a spy. Although the movie makes a point to show that he's not really a spy. He's like a spy professor, played by Christopher Plummer, and. <laughs> He's teaching these guys German, he's putting them through the ringer, he's pretending to interrogate them, you know, he's doing all this stuff, but he makes a point to say, you know, he never goes on the mission himself, he's not a hero. He has a, uh, in a a way that in any other, if anyone else had written this, it wouldn't, this scene wouldn't exist. But because it's Peter Hyams, it's all, all the feelings are all out here and everyone's expressing them all the time. Mm Mm-hmm he has this scene where he admits his sort of, uh, cause he's an important guy in the war effort, England, you know? And yet he admits this sort of, um, insecurity that he has about not being the guy who does the thing. And that she probably deserves more than that. And she's, he's older than her. And, you know, it's this kind of sad scene. A really young, really young Patsy Kinzett plays their daughter. Yeah. Um, but it this movie it's not Capricorn One. I mean it, it it's it has a bit of a cult following because it's it it has a there's a lot of real pleasures to it. You know, like I say, the B12 sequences are fantastic. Um, there's some psychologically interesting things that are going on with both Plummer and Ford's character as two people who are executing this war. Uh, Leslie Ann Down, who's wonderful, is really left to be like, oh, what do I? She's just kind of what do I do? I love this guy, but I also love this guy. And that's a tough, mm-hmm. as a tough spot for a heroine and a film to, it, it's a very common one in this kind of movie back in the forties and fifties to be placed in, in the late seventies, it's really tough to go. Oh yeah. You're in love with more than one person. We feel really bad for you. You know, you kind of watch it. Going, <laughs> yeah. It, and that's too bad because she doesn't do anything wrong. And she, she does bring a lot of, um, Pathos to the character, but it—that's it, uh-huh. a tough, that's a tough one to buy her. Uh, and she and the movie leaves her nothing to do. The, of course, the film, through a convoluted series of events, sends these two guys to an undercover mission together, or thrusts them into one based on circumstances where each of their, each of their, you know, Harrison's sort of movie star heroism and mm-hmm. Plummer's smarts and and tactics. Have to combine to get this thing done because neither of them could pull it off on their own. It's got some great stunts. Has an incredible motorcycle jump over this ravine that was really shot. These were the days, right, where you shot this stuff. Right. Um, it's got some pretty bad rear projection effects at the end of that sequence, which sort of ruin it. But it, it, there's a lot to like about it. A lot of period stuff. Beautiful, weepy, romantic just drippingly romantic score by John Barry, which if you've seen our show about somewhere in time, or you've seen really any time we've talked about John, mm-hmm. he's made for this kind of thing. And that really makes the thing wonderful. It's a big widescreen entertainment. It's just, even for 79, it's, it's old fashioned to a fault. And right. I don't, so people didn't really latch on to it. Ford didn't really end up appreciating it much. Plummer, I think he's in his element in parts of it, but in those scenes where he's like, uh, my feelings are hurt by, I'm not a very brave person and I'm not good looking enough. It's like, <laughs> are you really, is he really saying that stuff, Christopher Bloomer? Yeah. He does it. He does the work of it, but you can tell they're all sort of, the only guy who's completely at home in this thing is Richard Masur, because he plays a, a super cowardly nose gunner who complains nervously every time. Like, There's just scenes of the plane flying. You don't even see Mm -hmm. him talking. You just hear him talking over the radio inside the (laughs) plane. Just should this be like this? Why are we doing this? Like he just he doesn't want to die, obviously. And he's so he just it's just super funny and weird. But you know, there's like a dance scene at a officer's club and it's got all the requisite things that you want. There's a bombing of London where our two romantic star lovers have to huddle together in the dark. You know, it's got all that great stuff in it. It's a very yeah. shadowy shot too, so it's very easy to look at, very moody, and so I like yeah, it. Yeah. I, I genuinely like. It. I like it as much as anyone you will ever find. So take that, take my enthusiasm for it with a grain of salt, because most people don't mm-hmm. like anniversary Street
1: um so next up I mean as a writer he did uh write the hunter uh Steve McQueen's uh the oh, yeah. um i think it's the final movie i think um uh, but then he um uh his next movie as a director mm. was uh he really wanted to do a western right. um but instead he got to do outland which is a western it is high Jupiter. it is
2: literally high noon in space yeah
1: It's high noon in space. A federal marshal stationed at a mining colony on the Jupiter moon of Io uncovers a drug smuggling conspiracy. He gets no help from the workers or authorities when he finds himself marked for murder.
2: Uh, This is one of the... Well, I guess Capricorn 1 is going to be the other one, so I already kind of went off on that. But these were going to be my next double feature. Maybe I'll have to choose another one. I feel like if either Rob or or michael and i suspect michael hasn't really seen these i really want to share them with them so that's why i want to still do this because those episodes aren't sort of about me pontificating or telling you everything about a movie but they're about us sharing with each other which i think is the magic of it maybe i'll Mm -hmm. still do it but outland is is uh we're not giving the rankings of these what was capricorn one Oh, I, I thought we were gonna wait till the end. So that's well, why well, I just I think let we it go. should say what number they are, and then at the end we'll reveal the order. Otherwise
1: Nope, that's just fine. That's just fine. Uh Capricorn one, despite its name, comes in at number two.
2: <laughs> really good. Um Han-
1: yeah, Hanover Street can comes in at 10. Uh Outland here uh is uh, is ranked as the number three Peter Hyams film.
2: And Outland um, is my my personal little baby outland is my personal favorite it's Mm -hmm. my my binky you know i (laughs) I love outland i can watch it it's one of those movies where i can watch it just every night basically and fall asleep to it like a lullaby um it just got a great look again great score by jerry goldsmith uh really really solid uh, effects for the time um great very serious you know kind of silly setup but with a very serious performance by uh sean connery when he was down in the dumps in terms of who would hire him for what this was definitely Mm -hmm. one of those movies between um man who would be king and untouchables there's this swath of stuff he's still playing leading man roles but they're just they're just the best things he could get and sometimes they're not great yeah and this wasn't a huge hit but it was a reasonable hit so yay good for that because it's got a (laughs) lot going for it um it's got just fantastic cinematography it's got an incredible foot chase an indoor foot chase in the middle of it. So there's this stuff where that recommended where you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And the thing it has that Hanover street was missing to some degree but the thing that it has, the Capricorn one had is these really, really vivid characters. Uh, the most vivid of which is played by, uh, Francis Sternhagen, Right. Who that role, first of all, that role was written for a man. I believe it was written for Sam Waterston because it's essentially the same character as the one in, uh, in, uh, but he had gone off to bigger and more serious Cameron. things. Um, yeah. And it was originally offered to... Who was the actor? Um, She's the one in in uh, that we were praising so much in, uh, in a, When a Stranger Calls. She's the one that shows up later in the film. What's her name?
1: Oh, God, yeah. Um, it was originally offered to
2: her. She's really, really good. She turned it down, though. And here's Frances, and man, this might be my, and this is an actor we love. Every time she comes up, she comes up in Misery, she came up in The Mist, you know, the Stephen King things. Every time she shows up in something, we adore her. And this part, I just don't know what to say. It's, it's, It's just fantastic. She just totally gets what Hyams wrote. And plays it and and brings it down to earth in this fantastic way. And maybe better than anyone ever does with his dialogue in any of his films. You know, Connery gets... I'm not saying Connery like she's better than him, but he gets to play the straight guy. Brolin gets to play the straight mm-hmm. guy. That's easier. Elliot Gould does this really good. Recaro does it really good. But they talk in a different way. She talks in a, this movie way that would really be annoying if she didn't do the work of making it awesome. And... It's glorious because it's funny. All the stuff that she says is funny. This whole thing is like, well, are you sure The the sheriff and this doctor are at odds throughout the whole film? Basically. Are you sure? And she's like, yes, I'm sure I'm unpleasant. I'm not stupid. I can count. (laughs) (laughs) She's got, you know, that's word for word, a line that she says that I just can listen to her say over and over and over and over again. It's, it's delightful. But, Federal marshal, federal marshal security for this mining operation on the one of the violent moon of Jupiter, Io. Um, yeah, finds this this the conspiracy going on with this uh, horrible company, Con Amalgamate. Told you we'd talk about those guys again. Um, this film, uh, not not canonically, but. This film takes place in the Alien universe. The set design is the same. Mm-hmm. The music is the same. Um, the evil company that everybody just calls the company is the same. Um, it 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 and really the design of it. I can't stress this enough. It, it the interiors, the company logos, the suits that they wear, the little jumpsuits. All of it is yeah. right out of Alien from a design standpoint. And I all and there's like eight to 12 different crew members from alien that worked on this film. So, um,
1: that makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it it just feels like
2: that greasy, grimy lived in, it's this old mining town. Mm -hmm. And when the, when the black hat says, Hey, Marshall, you're going to play along or we're going to get rid of you. And the Marshall refuses, uh, then the bad guys start showing up and it's got that great scene. He comes into this cafeteria, you know, it's the saloon and, in high noon it's the big the old metal cafeteria which turns into a bar at night They just changed the lighting and i really yeah. believe that's not a movie thing i think that's the cafeteria becomes a bar at night they change the lighting yeah because um, why
1: not yeah because why not
2: right, exactly um he comes walking in there and they all everybody you know it's that scene where they all go quiet and he's the lion is straight out of high noon so again peter's not being coy this is this is high noon he says I could really use, except as Connery says, so I could really use some help.
1: And they're <laughs> yeah.
2: like, you're supposed to protect us. What we we what are we supposed to do? You know, the, the coward. Marshall? Kind of yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, um, I love quick. Outland. I love it. Top to bottom, kind of every moment of it. I love the big showdown at the end where the hero has to use his wits to avoid these assassins I love Peter Boyle as the company stooge who's the kind of the head yeah. I love Peter Boyle in this love Francis Sternhagen in it but more than that in these tiny little roves these tiny little roles Maurice Roves Angus uh Angus who we always talk about and I always forget his name Angus eh. uh, Angus you know for, he was a uh, eh. gold leader or whatever in Star Wars he, he's great mm-hmm. um um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I
1: have it right here. I just moved away because I was looking up. It was Colleen Dewhurst who was originally Colleen offering. Dewhurst,
2: thank you. Who was, uh, <laughs> she would have been great, right? Yeah, She would have yeah. done the same thing. I think Colleen would have buried herself in the reality and the, the tragicness of this character, whereas Francis makes it real, but makes that dialogue pop and snap in a way Mm -hmm. that I think that, that Colleen maybe wouldn't do, but it's good casting. I mean, Waterston doers. That's good casting, but like in a lot of situations, they landed on the perfect person. Um,
1: And we were, and we're trying to think of uh, Angus McGinnis.
2: McGinnis. I I was, it's, it's our buddy, Angus McFadden, whose name comes into my mind whenever I say Angus. And I can't get to McGinnis after his name comes in there. So, Sorry, everyone. That's what goes on in Ryan's brain. Uh, sadly, this show is kind of... That's mm-hmm. one of the foundations it's built on, we'll just say. So you have to kind of deal with the um, pluses and the this minuses. Movie, but Stephen This Burconnell, movie was up, yeah. James B. Sicking. James, uh, James Sicking. James Sicking, Sicking, Sicking back, who, yeah. was, who was a silent, sunglasses-wearing assassin in Capricorn 1, is, is Peter Hyam's... Lucky Charm. He's in, I don't know how many of these. We're going to talk about him at least three more times. Yep. Uh, And James Sicking is fantastic in this film. He plays the corrupt deputy who doesn't want to be corrupt anymore. And just if if he weren't surrounded by, you know, tools and sellouts, might have been the good guy in a movie. It's a really Mm -hmm. wonderful, really well-fleshed-out character that he gets to play and that he plays really, really well. And even... Even our even Connery, our hero is like, nah, you, know, you just keep taking your money. I don't want you. I want the yep. big cheese. You know what I mean? Yep. It's a it's a tragic um, character that I really really love by an actor who really does get Peter and what he wants. Those two are they must be great friends. They did just tons of films together.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, this movie was, um, up for, it was up for best sound for, uh, for the Academy Awards. It, it also was pretty, it was pretty, uh, it was it, Francis Sternhagen won, um, the Academy of science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. She won best supporting, and this was up for several, uh, several awards, including best, um, science fiction film. So, I mean, it is, it's a, it was a pretty, you know, it's a pretty beloved film in those circles. Uh, and why not? It's a, it's,
2: It's high noon in space, y'all. Yeah, I mean, mean, let's get on board. Exactly, and again, Peter wrote this. We're gonna somewhere in here. I know exactly where, but somewhere here, we're gonna. He's gonna not be writing these anymore. Mm -hmm. And I promise the show will pick up the pace once he stops being a director (laughs) and just being a director. There's still stuff to talk about, but when you take his. I don't even want to say his writing because I think he's involved in the storytelling heavily, even as he, even to this mm-hmm. day, probably. But when you take his dialogue away, his scripting, the way he edits the thing before he's even shot it, you know, the he like you take that away from him, and especially you take that that bap bat bap 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 like wise ass characters out of his thing, and they mm-hmm. they 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 the. Peter Hyams, the auteur goes away and we're left with Peter Hyams, the, the Hollywood hack that, and I say that respectfully because that's not the worst thing you could be. But, right. but I, when I think of films like this, when I think of Francis, when I think of Brenda Vaccaro, you know what I mean? Uh, when I think of Richard Messer and Hanover street, I just, it's Peter. It can only be him. Uh, that's wonderful. It's wonderful to create with your own voice. I think that's a magical mm-hmm. thing that we should celebrate.
1: Um, Okay, so next, oh, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention here that we should, that you know, with Outland because it's Outland is because it's got such a, it's got such these great sequences is he shoots his own stuff. He's his own DP. That's um, actually for the most part on a lot of on a lot of things. That's
2: actually a that's true. It's absolutely true. He his editor somewhere around uh, nineteen somewhere in the in the late nineties stopped working with him. Because it's just too dark. I can't edit this anymore. This is just dark mush. They just had enough. <laughs> the movies just keep getting darker and darker and darker as they go. Yeah, it's and terrible. that's yeah, him yeah. as his as his own as his own cinematographer. Um, however, it, it, this is the place... And Peter, uh, you mentioned the quote. Peter is this gregarious guy. It's fun to listen to him talk about his own work. But one of the sort of uh, dirty secrets about him especially in this early days was that he hires the, the credited cinematographer for Outland is a great example is Steven Goldblatt, who went on to be a renowned cinematographer in the kind of action adventure films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he shot the lethal weapon films, if I'm not mistaken. So he's, you know, he's, he's very talented. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right about it. Uh, this was his second job and he was told to go sit in the corner and not do anything. I going to do, he's a photographer for his own work. So, and that was rough and he would have quit actually if he could have, but he was, he was this new guy who really couldn't quit, but he was extremely insulted by the idea that I'm not, I'm here for no reason. My name's going to be on this thing and I'm not actually going to have shot it. I'm not even going to get to collaborate on it. Mm Hmm. Um, and that was the story that happened. (laughs) Well, it stopped happening because the union made him stop. At some point here, the union just said, all right, you know, we are not, we're sick of dealing with this. You can be your own cinematographer, but it was a union thing where you couldn't be at the time. And I believe it's a union thing where you can't be again. (laughs) I could be wrong about that, but I, you know, there was this phase in there where Peter was able to to do that, be his, be his own cinematographer, but it's, So I don't want to rip on him, but that's, it is, that is the dark spot on his career as a, from a biographical standpoint was that he treated these guys. He literally tricked them because they don't, they could just say yes or no. Maybe he could find a cinematographer who just wanted to take the money and not work. But he found up and coming guys who were really talented, um, and, and hired them, didn't let them shoot the movie and did let them take the heat if the process of filmmaking slowed down. In
1: the <laughs> yeah. yeah. So
2: that's kind of not nice, but, but his point was, and he won the argument ultimately was, look, I'm shooting these. If let me do it and we won't have any of this drama basically. And, and then they let him do it and they didn't have any of that drama. So there you go. Uh, but Joel's right. Really smart storytelling, really good editorial sense, really good sense of design, guy who writes his own scripts and a guy who shoots his own movies. That is a – for a guy that you didn't hear of a lot, that is a movie world renaissance man, truly. I mean, he does Mm -hmm. it all, so – all right, next
1: up. All right, next up is uh, after uh, looking over their calendars and syncing up when they had some time free, uh, James B. Sicking and Hal Holbrook and Peter Iams, Uh then uh, decided, oh, hey, we got, here's some months free. Uh, let's get Michael Douglas and we're going to shoot the Star Chamber.
2: Another conspiracy film.
1: Yeah. Frustrated with the legal system gone haywire, a secret society of judges hires Hitman to stop. Nuff out criminals who escape courtroom justice. But one young judge questions the ethics of the vigilante system.
2: Without getting too far into the weeds, the star chamber was a thing in feudal England, essentially where the these high ups in English society, the lords and such would meet in this room, which had little stone stars into the ceiling the Star Chamber, and if they felt that the English justice system was dragging its feet or didn't achieve something that they wanted that served commerce, or sometimes that where justice, you know, just slipped through the cracks, they would meet, conspire, and act against the criminals and the wrongdoers. And I, like I say, it's a little more complicated than that because it's also. <laughs> Act in their own economic interests and act in you know, the right. so there, so. It's a, this is a corrupt idea, vigilante justice. But it's but the thing that makes it interesting is that it was done by the people who really are in charge of society at the time. And the Star Chamber is no different. A young guy, a young prosecutor, gets um, becomes a judge and is welcomed into the brotherhood of criminal. Judges and stuff, but he's having cases and he's sort of whining over drinks about how, you know, I don't know what, like, I let this guy go and it was, and I had to because of the law, but this sucks. There's no justice here. And they're all like, well, mm-hmm. you're just naive or whatever. But he, he, he's in Douglas's character's impassioned about this. And this is a great, this classic Michael Douglas character, actually, this guy, because he, because yeah. he's, his heart's in the right place. He's a really good-looking movie star, but he's an everyman in a way that we can relate to, and his desire for something different, something better, something new or more exciting leads him down this path of horrors, just like it does in Fatal Attraction, just like it does in Basic Head yeah. Snake. You just go on and on and on. Uh we we in the era, especially feminists and the feminist in me, to some degree, ripped on Michael because I was like, dude, you play all these just guys who do this horrible crap and pretty much deserve what's coming to them. But I later heard him say, you know, that's, first of all, that's how Hollywood saw me at a certain point. And those were good good projects. But secondly, that's what's interesting. You're being corrupted and having to find your way out of it is what's interesting. You know, he, he deliberately in the nineties played a couple of really heroic guys and I have to agree with them. They're not bad. He's good at that. But he's more interesting as the other thing. That's just more interesting stuff. So even mm-hmm. though this is a lesser known Michael Douglas vehicle, he's the perfect guy to play this judge who the Star Chamber, this other guy having heard his feelings about it recruits, and of course, and he goes through a couple things where they, they, they literally like prosecutors. There's judges. They sit in this dark star-shaped table, and they, there's nine of them, just like the chief justices of the Supreme court. I like that. It's a nice touch. And they sit around and they, they, the guy pulls out the file and he makes the case. This guy did this, blah, blah, blah. Here's his history. He's never going to change. He got off on this technicality. What, what's saying? Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, yes, 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 yes. And when they say that suddenly this guy, Oh, he's dead in an alley the next day. Uh, and he's some criminal, so who gives a crap? Basically, right? Uh, Douglas has one of these cases come up, and he's he kind of for the movie kind of hides in the background while we learn what his life is like and and everything. But he, when he finally he gets a case where that he wants to bring to the Star Chamber, and he and he makes the case, and they all unanimously agree to take this guy down. And even Hal Holbrook, again, who's kind of the founder of the feast in this thing, again, perfect, right? He makes the case to him. Look, there's nine of us. We all have to agree. This is, you know, we're not not just murdering people. We're just taking really, really bad players out of society when society isn't able to do it for itself. This is a good thing. It's a dark thing, but who better to hold that responsible... Than us. He very, very, I mean, he convinces everybody, convinced me when I was watching the movie. Yeah. Good idea. Star Chamber. Awesome. They're the heroes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> Douglas finds out <laughs> that this guy that he's uh, uh, um, nominated for assassination uh, is innocent. He ain't innocent. He's just not guilty of this crime. He's that-
1: of this particular crime. Yeah.
2: So that makes it complicated. And the rest of the movie is cat and mouse, him trying to save the life of this dude who doesn't want his help and is going to kill him. If he sees him, this judge at his trial. Yeah. Um, and all the other players that come in and then the star chamber having to, the eight of them having to unanimously agree to take out the judge. Cause he's, you know, so that's, you can see where it's going. It's yeah, great. Yeah. Dark. It's fun. Wow. Is it dark again? This film has it's... accredited, uh, cinematographer who, even the poster like it's just these random figures you know It's the, all black. Dark.
1: it's yes you you you, you noticed that actually in uh, after you said how dark it is and i'm like yeah literally every poster here
2: yeah.
1: uh is 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 all dark it's all on black background yeah you know,
2: ficoto james b sicking again all these great people doing this what this is a, a rather serious and dour film for uh for Peter to have written but it's it's very clever and 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 for that kind of film from that era it's really really great it's a great early 80s video shell film where you're like hmm, what's yeah. this and you bring it home and you really do get wrapped up in it and swept away by it
1: that that's exactly how i saw it that's 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 a pretty pretty uh pretty uh, astute observation all right <laughs> let's move on to oh and star chamber on the master list comes in At number seven Not bad Number seven Nope Uh, And uh, So next up is um, All of the films that Peter Wright
2: made the top Peter wrote Made the top Mm ten Yeah There are 15 Um, of these we're going to talk about
1: This next film He uh, he wrote the screenplay And he worked very closely with the author of the book Um, And this is a sequel to uh, 2001 Uh, And we go a little uh, Go nine years later which is uh seems adorable now now that we're sitting here in 2022 uh but we're gonna go uh he Nine worked with arthur, arthur c
2: clark and he on 2010 the year we make contact 2010 you have to say it right 2010 is not a title that's an okay way to say the year 2010 but 2010 <laughs> just like 2010,
1: 2001, yeah, 2001. Yeah. all right all right <laughs> I just wanted to get your blood up a little well, bit.
2: Uh, <laughs> you well, know, you, know, you know just how to push my button. Um, t- 2010, you had me. I almost did it. <clears throat> All right. It's awesome. I love 2010, too. Uh, it's Here's the problem. <laughs> 2001 is a tone poem made by arguably the greatest visual director that ever lived yeah it's 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 meaning is transcendent it's it's film craft is unmatched by anything before or since (laughs) it's 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 it 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 it, it can be rub you the wrong way because people don't really talk and it's weird and it just doesn't have a nice narrative that you can cling to although when things do start clicking in it they really do click um but it's it's metaphor and all that, that all that layers of meaning that are unspoken and it can be maddening to people who are used to modern storytelling. But otherwise, but we all agree more or less. Even those who find it frustrating that it's an absolute masterpiece of filmmaking, nineteen sixty eight to two thousand one, and that it leaves all the meaning of the thing, all of it, for you to figure out and hash out. It makes it it, it, it requires the audience. Be engaged on that level and be willing to discuss it afterwards. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke and the back in 2001 days, we can't talk about 2001 too much. That's a whole
1: mm-hmm. double That's episode a, basically. Yep. yep.
2: But, but Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, who directed it, wanted to work with a writer Hand in hand, and he picked this novelist Arthur C. Clarke, who, in terms of first contact stories and ideas about aliens and artificial intelligence, I mean, he was the top, and still is pretty much the top science fiction writer, ever. And they worked together on it. Clarke would write a book, Kubrick would make a film, and then it would be different, but they would they would be companion pieces to one another. Um, Clarke, many years later, more 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 a little little more than nine. 14 years later, wrote a sequel mm-hmm. called 2010, The Year We Make Contact. And it well, is. The, a book, direct... the book was called
1: Odyssey 2. Right. The book was 2010. Odyssey was... 2, actually. I, I believe would have, Odyssey yeah. 2
2: would have made a better title for the film, I think.
1: Yep. Uh, I believe Arthur C. Clarke pronounced it 2010.
2: Um, I don't think he did. Odyssey <laughs> 2. No, John, he did not do that. <laughs> I will not let you besmirch Arthur C. Clarke. Um. 2010, 2010 odyssey Two, but of yeah sorry to get through 2010 yeah, not, I gotta, yeah. 2010 <laughs> is awesome it's awesome it 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 brings back um douglas rain the voice of HAL 9000 computer it brings back uh kira as um david bowman the crewman of the ill-fated jupiter mission mm-hmm. um it brings back the main character ostensibly from the first part of 2001 um dr haywood floyd but it recasts william sylvester who had aged demonstrably with roy scheider and instead of kubrick's antiseptic dialogue that william sylvester makes sing in 2001 but but never really is the guy who talks for the whole middle hour of the film and never says anything Mm -hmm. um now we have the same character played by a, a different actor who's uh, six and a half inches shorter has his own personality and who really, really embraces Peter Hyam's dialogue. So yeah. a matter of fact, all these characters do to one degree or another, but it's, it's a really good movie starting with the fact that it's, it's Arthur C. Clarke wrote this. So the ideas in this film are hard science fiction and two thousand. Tan is one of the best hard science fiction films ever, really. It's really, really smart. The ideas in it are really, really clever. If anything undoes it, it's just totally so different than, than 2001. And it's just the idea of it. Roger Ebert's like the idea of a sequel to 2001 just is repellent to me i just i hate it he said he he used a great metaphor ebert he's like it's it reminds me of the little boy who broke open his drum to see how the sound was made mm-hmm. this film everything that 2001 leaves to your imagination this film has somebody explain to you explicitly all the mysteries are solved everything the yeah, meaning yeah. of everything comes to the surface in a way it's a great tonic if you're frustrated by 2001 because it's more of the same but it it, it just gives you a traditional narrative um scheider's fantastic in it it's one of his he's really really great in this role he's um, he's
1: really really good in this, there,
2: yeah. again there's guys who really really make the uh the the Peter Hyamsness of it. Not the Arthur C. Clarke-ness yeah. so much. But the Peter no, hyams no, you... of it, saying Dana Elkar shows up at the beginning from TV's MacGyver. He's fantastic, saying uh, Peter Hyams like smart assy things. Uh, John Lithgow is fantastic in it. Um... But even but even
1: Roy Scheider gets to say the kind of the Peter Hyam smart. I mean, he gets to say all of this stuff, but he does all that. He kind of has that face of. Uh, there's so much like there's that that great scene where he's just sitting. there, sitting around. And he's talking. He's talking all about the 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 trip to Jupiter and everything like that. And 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 he just kind of delivering it. His, his glasses are like the half glasses That's here. Right. He's just yep. kind of, yep. and he's just kind of like and he just delivers all of this dialogue. But he's just kind of got this face of like.
2: Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a it's a cold the, war yeah, yeah, movie. That's what Haims brought to it. It's yeah. a joint Russian US space mission went during the, at 80 1984 now, the height of the basically the height of the movie stage play cold war. The height of the cold war is probably back in the 60s someplace in right. reality. But by yeah. 84 we were really really good at dramatizing it, I guess is what I want to say. So, um So it's got that in it, and that actually, when you watch it now, feels relevant again in a weird way, even though the nomenclature has changed. Those, you know, that, uh, on the brink of war for seemingly no reason, for purely ideological reasons, feels relevant, so that's kind of interesting. It is Helen Mm -hmm. Beren's first role. She plays the commander, the Russian commander, of the the thing. She's great in it. She's kind of she doesn't get to say anything funny in it. So she's really got to hold down the fort. <laughs> yeah. It, but she's great though. And it's great that it's great that Clark wrote a female commander and it's great that Hollywood stuck with it. And it's awesome that they found, you know, Dame Helen Mirren plucked her off the stage, put her in it. She's, she's genius. Uh, Lit-Gow's yeah. always good. The relationship between Litgow and Ilya Baskin, if you, you don't know Ilya by name, I trust me, you know, him when you see him, he's, is wonderful the friendship between this American and this Russian cosmonaut, this American engineer. He's not an astronaut, that definitely plays into the Lithgow's character. It's not supposed to be floating around in space, he's designed all this stuff and he knows what it all is. But what am I doing up here? That comes home to roost like in a really key moment. And I love Ilya Baskin. This, I, I whenever he shows up and stuff, but I this might be my favorite role of his. He's in the Tobey Maguire uh, Spider-Man movies. He's Peter's landlord, if that helps you guys. And he was the cutest, cuddliest Russian guy of the late <laughs> 70s and early 80s. Yeah, yeah. He just was. Each successive movie, Moscow, other movie in 1984, Moscow on the Hudson. He's just huggable and lovable. Um and then the third, the real ringer, I think, is Bob Balaban. Now, Bob Balaban plays a guy named, uh, who is always awesome. He plays a guy named uh, Dr. Chandra. Is supposed to be Indian, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, East Indian of Indian uh, extraction. He's an American, but, you know. Um, right. They cast Balaban, who's brilliant. He plays this weird, mousy, I-only-have-relationships-with-computers guy. He was the re- designer and original teacher of... of uh, the HAL 9000, and he comes along on this mission to reactivate HAL and to try and help yeah, him figure out, what, the, figure out
1: happened. what happened.
2: Yeah, uh, Richard Edland, hot off of Return of the Jedi. he Richard did all the space effects in Return of the Jedi, which are astounding, even to this day. Richard does the space effects. He makes Jupiter come to life in an extremely believable way. Everything in 2010, even though the dialogue may be cheesier and everything may be explicit, everything in it Outside that there's maybe a few, Joel, back me up on this. There's probably a few too many buttons on the Leonov spacecraft, right? I'm well, sure. Nothing, yeah. nothing needs that many colored buttons, surely.
1: Yeah, it was this idea that, you know, the it was, yeah, the whole thing was the future. me. This was when they, you know, they kept, the, the, they were still saying that, uh, you know, the more powerful the computer, the larger room you need, right, right, right. and the more things that'll. But it's funny that so when you they go stop. into
2: the when they get to the Jupiter and they go inside and you you're back on Kubrick sets. There's yeah, no yeah. buttons anywhere. It's just all it's elegant yeah, yeah. and clean and nice. Whereas the. Whereas the Leonov is right out, it's great design of a ship, but it's right out of Alien, basically. It's low ceilings, everyone's huddled together at these little tables, you know, everything's got multi-purposes. Everybody sleeps in these little glass cubes. Um, (laughs) That film's full of humanity, though. It's got too many voiceovers. And it does have some flaws. It's not a masterpiece. That, that That's its no, biggest flaw. Yeah. It's a big, broad entertainment for 1984. It absolutely works on that level. Even Ebert, who did nothing but rip on it, his review, was got to the bottom. He's like, taken on its own terms, three out of four stars, basically. So he gave it a positive yeah. review.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, he did. Um, yeah, he was, like, he was like, it's
1: not uh, where... I, I, I was just looking here, and he said... Uh, uh it doesn't match the poetry but it does continue the story it offers sound he uh, his biggest thing is he didn't like the ending he thought the ending was too soft essentially too um you know hunky dory
2: (laughs) romsky come marchy
1: (laughs) yeah Um, without 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 ruining it if there's any if there are people out here who haven't seen uh 2000 surely there are yeah. so
2: yeah but it, uh, yeah it is it is it is a soft landing as a matter of fact it we won't go into it we need to move on we got all tons of movies yeah. left to do but this film was again Clark and Hyam's worked really really directly on it the one bit of fun trivia about it was outside of academia academia they were the first two people in the film industry to use email as a way of communicating with one another yeah yeah because they were far apart. Um, I think Clark was retired and living in Kuala Lumpur or something, someplace very exotic. And Hyams is out in Hollywood typing away, and they are they they had this dialogue back and forth that was immediate. They didn't have to write letters and they didn't have to make long distance phone calls. Um, mm-hmm. Some buddy Clark knew suggested that they use this new technology. So I think that's kind of fun. Um, that is cool. It's a it's a good movie. It's Hayams' best movie as Joel is about to tell you, it's, it, it, it's the film where, you know, his career built up to this film and it's all downhill after this. This is the film where you're, if this, if you nail this one, you're the next Spielberg. You know what I mean? If you don't nail it, you're, they're not going to, you're going to have to find another path where they're not going to let you do this kind of thing anymore. Right. Um, he didn't, Hyams in classic tradition, really of what his, uh, filmology is filmography he, he didn't do either he didn't botch it and he didn't nail it it was a hit but it wasn't a monster hit mm-hmm. um you know it was a hit it, be, it the movie that came out the next week was dune dune was a flop and similarly <laughs> yeah, here, priced
1: here's the um, thing is if if this movie isn't a direct sequel to 2001 if this movie is just like uh jupiter trip uh, or you know we you know so just its own standalone thing if it had nothing to do now I mean obviously the movie is very different but if it somehow wasn't connected to right. this masterpiece it would be among the most uh, beloved would, science
2: fiction films of the eighties no doubt indeed indeed and uh, for it, the people who really like it or would really like it weren't connected to it because they may not have liked two thousand one it's a film that works but doesn't work. Great if you haven't seen 2001. So, right. so there's that. There's this baggage that comes with it. Even if you didn't like 2001, or even if you didn't worship mm-hmm. at it, it 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 is not ever allowed to be its own thing, and it is never ever pokes its head out from underneath the shadow of this other deal. But yeah, but for. For a commercial filmmaker who just wants to entertain people, it is highly entertaining. The effects Mm -hmm. are amazing. The cinematography is really, really well done. The settings that they use in the real world are fantastic. Um, You know, uh, I could just go out. All the bit players, Deschanel and and, um, Madeline Smith and Candice Bergen shows up in a cameo Mm -hmm. as a computer. Um, It's just really smart. Everything's... Treated with lots of importance. And and it looks glorious. It looks as glorious as anything they would make today. Maybe better than a lot of things. Because the model work, and I just can't stress this enough, Jupiter is such a, a looming beast of a thing visually. And it's just so amazingly real and come to life in this yep. film. In a way, uh, maybe CGI could do. But in a way that if you had CGI, you would overdo it. Right. No, that's a Which great would point. take some of its power away, I think. This film uses it when it needs it, and it nails it every time. Tr- truly hats off to Richard Edlund for incredible effects work. And David Shire, who scored the thing. David's not my favorite composer. I, unless we're talking musical theater, then I love him. But for films, I don't love him because he's a little weepy and whatever. Mm-hmm. But he replaced Tony Banks from Genesis at the last second, and really had to write what you're hearing very very quickly <laughs> and so it, under right. those circumstances you know at least he got to the emotional moment and such and did a pretty great job so yeah, 2000, yeah. 2010 yeah and of course and
1: uh, it probably should surprise uh, the listener not at all that 2010 the year we make contact is the number one Peter Himes film on it, is. it really is um, so way to go dad for everybody on the it really film. is and it yeah. shows
2: you the tragedy of the fact that that his best movie is a sequel to somebody to some much more celebrated <laughs> filmmaker's best sure. movie. You know what I mean? Sure. It's like yeah. This and it's not that that's tragic. It is a little, but it's that this is this is it. This is how this is where this is where you top out. <laughs> you know, yeah. that part of it is kind of sad because he I think he might have had other ambitions, but We're going to speed round the rest of these bad boys. Yeah, because, you know, because
1: literally, yeah, I mean, we we have, it's been the roller coaster ride where we're going click, 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 click click, click up to the top. Now uh, things head downwards in a pretty
2: quick manner.
1: Yeah, but Um, I think it is one of those roller coasters where you
2: have the fake dip before you really go down.
1: Yeah, because there, you know, there are some okay films coming up, but there are some, there are some, you know, some, some, some stanky trash Double. here. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Uh, next up is uh, this is actually the first one on here that he directed that he did not write. Um, this that's, movie, that's significant. Uh, I, it's, it's significant. It also uh, this movie, um, <laughs> it's, well, uh, a couple things. This movie was uh, very uh, important to, not important. I mean, this is a movie I watch a ton. When I was a kid, uh, I, yeah, this was uh, you know, and this is Billy Crystal at his uh, goofiest. And the one thing, maybe the one thing that has been missing from all of these Peter Hyams films, Dan Hidea We need, we finally get. some Surely, Dan
2: Hidea Dan surely will enhance uh, Dan this experience. Yeah, no doubt. Yep,
1: uh, uh, <laughs> and it does have, uh, does have a great. Uh, uh, the tagline is two of chicago's
2: finest uh and well and it's got the great poster where they're standing in front of this old ltd or whatever these two guys uh crystal's got his cubs shirt on and they just look like a couple of narc loser cops and their car has spray painted along the side of it undercover police car
1: yep (laughs) <laughs> unmarked police car uh two streetwise chicago cops have to shake off i mean that's rust visually
2: right that tells you everything yep. about this movie that you need to know it is a really really great poster that tagline yep. is a fantastic tagline so yeah you know. they
1: they come back from key west to pursue a drug dealer who nearly killed him in the past and it of course is
2: a running scared Running Scared. Without going too into the plot of this, I'm really going to not do that this time. No. Um, no. Uh, the only thing I will say is that this script is written for two old cops being pulled out of retirement to solve a crime against somebody. They have a, a, a thing. It was supposed to be old guys in retirement. Yeah, yeah, And they changed it to Peter Hyams went into the producer's room and was like, Instead of old guys, what if it was young guys getting called back from vacation? And the producer said, Now you're speaking our language, Peter Hyams. <laughs> <laughs> young guys, it could be there's some hot chicks in it. He's like, Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see." Well, well, yeah, we I mean yeah. They, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it was
1: written for it was written apparently for
2: Gene Hackman and Paul Newman. That would have been great. Holy Moses, yeah. that would have been good. Um, that would, would have, have a been a good as it is. Yeah. This is not a great movie, but it's certainly not a bad one. It is really, really enjoyable because of because as soon as he said "young guys," you know, they were like, "Yeah, who could it be? Tom Cruise?" and blah blah blah. And they ended up with Billy Crystal, who wasn't really a big star yet, and Gregory nope. Hines, who wasn't a star really of any kind. He'd been in stuff, but Gregory was was known for. Um, Foisting his personality on these supporting roles, these sort of things, right? Essentially, which yeah, is what he, which is what they both do here. This is Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines unfiltered. So even though Hyams didn't write the script, he took the script. He didn't much honor even the central premise of the thing, and he let these two guys who were prone to zaniness and improvisation and just let them go off. And sometimes, like in White Men Can't Jump, that's a disaster, and it's a big horrible thing. And sometimes it's magic. And in this case, yeah. that's really the magic of the thing. Lots of action. It's kind of, yeah. Old Chicago, old grimy criminal Chicago is really captured on film in a great, great way. Um, mm-hmm. The buddy cop, I mean, I you, know, you can't do anything new with that, but what they do is still wonderful between these two guys. Yeah. Big, big, big cliffhangy, actiony sequence at the end of the thing. It's, it pushes all the buttons, it knows all the stuff it wants to do. Peter wanted a big hit. He got again. He didn't get a big hit. He got a mild hit. Yep. Uh, but it is a film. I look back on it very fondly, and I didn't love it at the time. You really loved it at the time, and still love it. it yeah, it was
1: just. It was yeah. It was that. It was one of those go to movies. It was my. It was a nookie blankie. It's, movie. it's, it it's just, good
2: yeah. stuff. Really, it it doesn't have the storytelling ambition of some of these prior works, but it's good stuff. Truly, of that kind of film, it's it's hard to think stakeout maybe is a little better but it's really good yeah it's
1: really good it's it's a silly fun film yeah um what uh, a movie that uh running scared comes in at number four comes in at number four good job yeah um next up not silly fun um but uh uh, another one that he did not write uh but directed uh and this one is the presidio
2: Uh, yeah, with Sean Connery again. See, Sean must like Peter who came back to do this. This was supposed to be Sean Connery and Kevin Costner um, reprising, not reprising their roles, but reprising their relationship from um, Untouchables. That's why, that's part of the reason. Connery liked his experience on Outland and really, you could tell, he really returned a favor to the people who worked with him and cast him throughout his rough years you know what I mean? He re- when he became a star again, he really kind of turned mm-hmm. it
0: back.
2: Um, and this this was the first time he did that. So uh, Presidio is a uh, military uh, base on the very tip of the San Francisco Bay, like little it comes out to a tip, basically the Candlestick area. Um, and there's a, a murder happens there. What happens if a murder happens at the White House? What happens if a murder happens? It's one of those. It's re- And that's mm-hmm. really all it is. Um, the fun thing is that these two guys have a relationship. I'm uh, sorry. Uh, Costner didn't show up. He had other things he got wrapped up in. He w- yep. really was going to do this movie. And it would have been a decent role for him. But at that time, it probably would have been a bit of a step back for him. Um they got the uh, made for TV Kevin Costner, Mark Harmon, to step in yep. after they'd gone through a whole bunch of other names. And Mark, yep. great in this. This is a good role for Mark. Actually, really, really good role for him. This is about as A list as he got in anything, as far as I'm aware. Uh, or as much as he flirted with it, uh, but he's great. They, they have this contentious relationship. Meg Ryan's in it too. Mark Harmon's dating her. She's Connery's daughter. There's military history between the two, um, but they have to get over their differences and solve this murder together because you can't just be the cop solving it because it's on the military base. So you need a military liaison to solve it. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And and then it goes through the motions of a late eighties murder mystery cop thriller basically till you get to the end it's got some interesting again interesting cinematography very dark the way this the presidio is shaded as this dark gloomy place which it really isn't it's a tiny little place that isn't even a military base anymore um but it it, it it's, it's got his of those stylistic kind of iconic, trappings yeah. that that serve a conventional story like this pretty well but this and it, the stars are good. It really helps. Connery, I mean, if it were somebody mm-hmm. else, who knows? You know, so I like yeah. it, but I don't love it. And yeah, I'm sitting here and I've seen it four times or something, and I'm sitting here and I can't really remember how it plays out. Like it's that kind of movie where in a way it's nice. It's like a law and order episode. You watch it. Yeah, I know I've <laughs> seen this one before, but I don't remember what happens. And that's yep. what the Presidio kinda is. It's like you know, again, I remember the relationships and I remember all oh, the fight in the laundry, whatever room. I remember that. I remember some other things, but but I, I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember what this murder is about or what anything is here. So you get to be yep. surprised by the ending again. That's kind of neat. Yay.
1: Um, next up is Narrow Margin. Now, this is one that he did. He comes back and he writes this. Uh, of, of the movies that we're going to talk about, this is the last one that he writes. Um, and, uh, so, and it's called, uh, it's got, it's got Gene Hackman, Ann Archer, James B. Sticking, and it's called Narrow Margin.
2: I love Narrow Margin. I just did something I would never, ever do, Joel. I texted during the show. I apologize for that. I apologize to you. I apologize to the audience. I apologize to Mr. Hyams. I apologize to everyone who has been waiting patiently for Narrow Margin to finally come up on the list. You apologize to James Sicking. James B. Sicking. Oh, my God. What's his affectation in this film? Do you remember? I do not. It's the bright yellow marksman sunglasses. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? The yellow lenses. Uh-huh. Those make him evil. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love narrow margin. I don't know where I rated it amongst these objectively, but this is a this was a great thing for Peter to do. This is smart. Um, what can I do next? I'm not really sure. Well, let's look. Let's do what we say you should do. Instead of looking at properties I have the rights to and, and remaking a famous one that was already an awesome movie for um, 1990, let me look at movies that I have the rights to that were good but maybe weren't great and didn't get all the attention that they could have deserved or that their premise could have lived up to. Narrow Margins, the story of a woman, poor woman on a blind date witnesses a murder and gets involved in a conspiracy. She's played by Ann Archer. Her date, I kind of ruined this, but this happens at the beginning. Her date's played brilliantly by J.T. Walsh. Always welcome. Um, he's a guy where he should have, he's a guy where he would have been, could have been in any of these movies that he'd been great. Yeah, yeah. He, he he slides right in. Their date is fantastic. I am's stuff. Uh, and now she's running Scared not to steal a previous film's title but I mean she's she's on her own there's a federal marshal that's dispatched to bring her in as a witness to this who kind of figures out what's happening played by Gene Hackman fantastic in this film it's just this film's just a cheesy chase movie but it's really the chase part is great the action is fantastic there's a car chase in it the likes of which you've never seen in a film before and will never see and that sort of storytelling ambition is very much a part of this but I'm telling you, what it's got that no other movie that I can think of has is James B. Sicking in them yellow shades, man. I, he, <laughs> he is such an upright, double-breasted douchebag of a villain, and yet, and him and Hackman's stuff just sparkles. They're little... They Mm -hmm. only have a couple of talkie scenes together. They're mostly shooting at each other, but it just is wonderful. They find themselves on a train in Canada that's running across the bottom of the U.S.-Canadian border, and they gotta survive on the train until they get to where they can get help. It's It's that gloriously simple thriller formula film, and there's twists and turns and surprises, and Ann Archer, and and uh and archer and gene hackman's dialogue is actually more contentious than sickings and hackman's because at least they understand who each other are in this right, game. right. you know what i mean like there's i don't want to say it's mutual respect because hackman keeps sort of digging at sicking in this sort of great way but there's like well we know what we are with hackman and archer it's like what you're not going to survive like on your own. And she's like, well, you're not capable of saving me. And that tension is is loaded in the thing. And it's, Mm -hmm. I love narrow margin. It's, it's a film that's been treated on home video and on television really, really horribly. It's a film that takes place on a train. You have to watch it in scope. You have to watch it in widescreen. You just flat out have to watch it that way. If you take that away and you cut it in half, it it's a straight to video piece of garbage. If you open it up and you really see what he shot and the way he told the story, it's, it's as good as any movie made during the set. It's maybe not like fugitive Mm -hmm. good, but it's really, really good. So I love Narrow Margin and more people should check that out now that you can watch it properly.
1: Well, Narrow Margin, uh, comes in. Remake of the the...
2: Richard Fleischer film from the fifties. Sorry.
1: Sure. Uh, Uh, it comes in at number five on our Peter Himes list. Did I mention that Presidio was number six? So this one comes in and edges out Presidio a little bit. Uh, just
2: because yeah. the energy, it's just a less derivative. even though it's the remake, it's the less derivative yeah. thing for its time. Sure. And Hackman, uh, man, it's a great it's a great work mm-hmm. workman like Hackman performance, you know. This film, yeah. the package, there's a whole bunch that came out around this time where he's just awesome. You know, he's not Oscar winning awesome, but he's really, really good consistently through all this stuff
1: yep uh next up is uh it is Peter Hyam's doing a little kind of wacky crazy uh uh comedy high concept comedy um and this one uh stars the um the the oh the, I, I love I love John Ritter I will always love John Ritter he's he makes me so happy well um they
2: tried to get all the stars they could get this is one of those films where you look at the this is the males considered. This is the females considered. Yep. It's, it's everybody. It's everybody who was making money making movies at this time mm-hmm. in the early 90s. Um, and the masterstroke of it, because we're not going to spend much time on this. other The masterstroke of it, I suppose, is the high concept idea, which is fun. It, yep. it Although it doesn't make me laugh much, which is, means it's a failure. It makes me grin a little bit. That's not enough for a film that has right. this kind of energy to it. Right. It's a film that like if Joe Dante made it or somebody like that, it might've been, it might've really worked cause he might've really went for it. Uh, Hayam's he, he does it, but he, he's not that director. So he doesn't, he's not able to really go for it, but the master yeah. stroke, other than two poor people get trapped in this grisly cynical world of television that sort of meta, you know, represents our talk, that dark talk show, contest era of the early 90s you know reality TV mm-hmm. um is that he cast two sitcom superstars Pam dauber and John Ritter and yep and I I'm telling you I, I I cannot think when and I've only seen this a couple of times but I cannot think when I'm watching it of who would have been who could have possibly been better than these two in this film that you really right. can't take a movie star and make them John Ritter and Pam Dawber You just can't. And they're both, Mm -hmm. they both are also, I think you might have caught a superstar actor slumming in this and they don't ever give that impression that this is cheap or silly stuff. They play it totally straight. They play the horror of it. And that's the only reason it works to me on any level, but I, I don't love it. It's a comedy that doesn't make me laugh. That's it's. That's it's,
1: And that is a problem. I like that. It's high concept.
2: I like what it's trying to say, but we talked about Scrooge kind of in the same way. That's another film. It's trying to say something, but it doesn't really so manage great. to say it. And this film suffers from kind of the same problems. And it doesn't have a big comet superstar in it, you know. So it You know, that's a
1: great point. Yeah, that's a great comparison. Kind um, of died Scrooge. on
2: the vine a little bit.
1: Mm, yep, yep. Uh, all right, What's so it up. Well, oh, it, uh, it, on our list, uh, Stay Tuned comes in at number 11. Not bad. 11. Um, so next up is, uh, I don't really, I have no pithy way to bring us into this. It's Time Cop. It's Jean-Claude Van
2: Damme. We got a two-hitter Jean-Claude Van Damme <sighs> double feature here. And if you're yes, going to watch a Jean-Claude Van Damme double feature, you could do worse than these two movies. Matter of fact all but two others are worse than these two. So so they're not the best Peter Hyams movies, folks. Sorry. No. But no. They are amongst the best Jean-Claude Van Damme films, starting with Time Cop, a guy who goes around, travels through time and stops basically people from stealing throughout time. It doesn't really get much more complicated than that. You you want yeah. it to be about a cop who sets the timeline straight and maintains the integrity of history, but really it's just a good guy chasing bad guys by time traveling and keeping them from stealing. Am I wrong about that or that? No, I mean, maybe the, the, the
1: stealing is, you know, the, the stealing is in service to try to, control the future to gain
2: all this power and and money. But so this film doesn't this stuff, manage no, really demonstrating no. that, unfortunately. No. It's got a fun turn by Ron Silver as a as a, a villain, you know, it's he's only played once or twice. He's pretty fun in it. Van, van van Damme is pretty good, although it's really just a cheap it's a cheap Van Dam actioner with this with these science fiction trappings. To call this some sort of science fiction movie or like a science fiction classic is A mistake because it it, it's got some neat set design and some cool ideas but it it doesn't it's like stay tuned it's high concept and it doesn't really deliver on the concept what it delivers on is here's another way to do another Jean-Claude Van Damme film and in that way it is a success because here's another way to do a Jean-Claude Van Damme film that's not easy we got to keep making these couple of them every year and to find a new way to do it is a challenge otherwise they're all the same damn thing and then you're talking, then you're Steven Seagal, basically. And you don't, Nobody wants mm-hmm. that. So uh, during this era, Jean-Claude, with the help of Peter, sort of avoided that. But that's all I want to say about Time Cop.
1: Sure, because we're going to have to talk more about Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, did in, I say uh, that it was
2: super, super dark? It's really, really dark.
1: It's really, really <laughs> dark. It's really dark. Yeah, that's, uh, that's Time Cop machining. is our... Time Cop is the number 12 list, uh, 12 on the list. Yeah. Um, this one, the next up though, you know what, you know what, Time Cop, where, where Time Cop had time travel, Peter Himes went, okay, well we can't do time travel again. What if we do hockey? And, <laughs> I, I prefer uh, you
2: call it ice hockey for the terms. Of ice it. hockey. I'm not sure what other ice kinds hockey. of hockey there are, but I really do appreciate it. Well, the oh, there's term- field. Uh, okay, there's field hockey,
1: yeah, ice, uh, ice hockey. Terror goes into overtime in sudden death.
2: Sudden death is die hard oh. in an ice hockey arena during the yes, Stanley Cup. That's all it is. Yes, it's it is. as simple as that. There's a the vice president is there. There's a hostage situation and a fireman, French Canadian, former hockey playing fireman, is taking his kids to the Stanley Cup Finals to watch the Penguins play uh i, I want to say the kings i'm not sure who but that, it's takes place in pittsburgh and the Penguins are the stars of the film to some degree
1: mm-hmm.
2: and some guys or some gal and i think it was a gal largely on this script it's got a few different writers um sat down and was like well how many ways can you kill a henchman using hockey related things and the answer turned out to be 36 There's a 36-person body (laughs) count in this film, and Jean-Claude Van Damme kills every single one of them. Spoiler alert for Sudden Death. The thing that Sudden Death has that Time Cop doesn't have, because it's certainly not a better movie, is you can have fun with Sudden Death. You can have a lot of fun with Sudden Death if you come into it in the right frame of mind. Um, And yet, it's, it's, it's... the idea initially was to make a parody of the Die Hard films in this setting, yeah. and they don't. Yeah. They they have Van Damme who can't be put in a parody. He has to play it straight. That's all. That's his the only thing he's super good at really, other than like drop kicking people, right? Or I guess roundhouse kicking them would be more his thing. But um, it. It, he they play it straight and because they play it straight it's funnier and more fun as a result. Powers Booth is the bad guy in it he's fantastic. Again, he was like their 10th choice, but he was exactly the right guy. Um right. it the movie uh, Raymond J. Barry's in it some other folks, but the movie's fun. It's weird. His family, his little girl and whatever are like wrapped up in this thing. It's all shot on location during a hockey lockout, the NHL lockout in the civic arena in pittsburgh and around pittsburgh pittsburgh's a very cinematic place lots of hills lots of crooked buildings like on all these bluffs and things and lots of tunnels lots of rivers it's just lots of bridges it's just a very cool place to shoot a movie and this film has a lot going for it in it in terms of action but it's you can't call it good it isn't good at all on the even on the list of diehard rip-offs it's not high on the list so where is it ranked
1: uh you, you you put this one at on uh, number 9.
2: Number 9. If you if you don't mind everyone getting killed, if it, it's you really can't have fun with Sudden Death, that's the caveat. It's absurd amount of people meet their doom in this thing.
0: <laughs> it's an
2: absurd amount. It is a really really mm-hmm. violent film, but that's the point that's the point of the diehard ripoffs i mean that's the point they they push it all too far and that's the fun of it you it's fun like robocop is fun you know you do you you laugh and you are is, is shocked but you do need a shower afterwards so just yeah. be warned
1: um <laughs> all right next up is 1997's the relic and i believe the relic has made a previous appearance on this show before has it? If I remember correctly. I think, I think it might have. But anyway, uh, a homicide detective and an anthropologist try to destroy a South American lizard-like god who's on a people-eating rampage in a Chicago <laughs> museum.
2: Oh, my God. Whoever wrote that the synopsis. Yeah god bless you that's awesome of people eating your technically this guy doesn't want to eat people he just wants to eat your hypothalamus is that too much to ask folks uh this movie is um, for a monster movie is grizzly it's really dark and grizzly it's uh lincoln child and douglas Preston novel it's not. I don't think it was their debut novel, or maybe it was, but it was the debut of a lot of their ideas that they've continued throughout their 8 million novels together. Um, it's got a great Stan Winston creature in it. The digital effects mm-hmm. aren't quite up to realizing it, and the suit that they created was apparently very hard to work with. But Hyams brings it together, to his credit. He makes it work. He hides it in the shadows, which this... Dare I say the relic is the... Darkest movie on this it list? It might be! It might be the darkest one
1: because it's all, like, yeah, in this, you know... Yeah, it's, it's saying
2: a lot, Joel, to say that. <laughs> it's so
1: dark because it's just all in the... It's Yeah, well, it's in a museum
2: at night. It's in yeah. a dark... Uh, the Field Museum in Chicago. It's The book takes place in New York, but New York Museum of Natural History would have nothing to do with this film. But Chicago sure. read it and they were like, this is awesome! A monster yeah, in our museum! It. Like, they... They had the exact opposite reaction. They're like, well, the New York Museum said the kids would be scared to go to the museum because of this. They're like, what? Come on. Nobody Wait, comes man. to the museum. Bring it on. You know what I mean? It's like, so. <laughs> and the museum is a character in the thing. It's got a strong female character. Penelope Ann Miller plays her. It's got a very fun, wisecracking uh, cop played by Tom Sizemore.
0: Sizemore. Vincent
2: mm-hmm. D'Augusta. Great Chicago name. Um, and... His, side, his partner, played by uh, Ro- Romer, I uh, can't remember his name.
1: Uh, Clayton Rohner?
2: Clayton Rohnert. He's great in it, too. Linda Hunt's in it. She plays the curator of the museum. She's great in it. Um, it's a monster movie, and they're all taking it super serial, and so you don't have to. I mean, that's the gift of a monster movie to me, really. It, it, this isn't a good movie, either. It isn't. The thing looks fake when it's digital. It looks crazy fake when it's on fire. It, it the idea of it, like digging through people's spines to take the hypothalamuses out of their brains, is right. horrific. And the forensics that surround that idea are awful. The but there's some mystical, otherworldly magic to it too. The I the premise behind it is good. Preston and Child are good. Right? They're good like Michael Crichton esque writers. And this film, each step of the way, has some of these great ideas, and it has these moments of profound violence. Um, It has not one, but usually you get one, but it has two sort of mass casualty uh, sequences in it that are, you know, for what they are, are really, really horrible, and just show you how Mm -hmm. how unprepared humanity is for this kind of thing, and... Uh, it's, it's, I like it. I mean, I, cause I like a good old fashioned monster movie whose heart is in the right place. It wants to thrill and scare you, but it is, it softens a couple of the novel's harshest things, but it is a harsh movie. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I remember when I walked out of it was that I, that's not, you know, I was expecting sort of Jurassic Park light kind of thing. You know, I was not expecting this. This was I, again, I don't know how many yeah. people bite it in this thing or get their heads chopped <laughs> off by this right. creature, but it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot more than you are expecting. All
1: right. Let's uh let's uh, let's move on to um, you know, one of the things that I think uh Peter Hyams is great at is, is he asks questions like, What if what if Satan just really needed love <laughs> and needed a bride? Um, so that he could and, create a
2: child so that he could rule the earth
1: so but maybe yeah maybe it's just maybe that's what it would take for satan to just chill out uh, peter hyams asks that question in uh with arnold schwarzenegger in end of days
2: uh, end of days one yep. of the one of a trilogy of 1999 devil related films Indeed. um yeah it it and is it the worst one I'm gonna say Stigmata is the worst one, but it's yeah, it's it's really a pickup. The best one is definitely Ninth Gate with Johnny Correct. Depp. This maybe falls in the middle somewhere. Uh, it's got some pretty good. It's got a crazy good Schwarzenegger action scene early on in it, which I don't know that it even belongs in this movie, but it makes the movie feel bigger <laughs> and more eventful. I think that it would otherwise. Um, sure. It's got Schwarzenegger who's game to have a hit, even though this wasn't it. He really is trying his hardest. Um, but it's what? It, it's just, its it's cheap. The Relic is a mean-spirited film by design. Yeah. But this film is like a cheap, Kind of exploitative thing, and I think maybe that's my reaction to the the devil needs to breed sort of plot line of it. Our heroine, played by Robin Tunney, is naked for no reason twice. Um, I guess well to make her vulnerable on screen or something. You can come up with whatever excuse, but if you don't have a real reason, then what? Why is this happening? It just it makes me feel. This isn't the time to bring this up, but here's my take in a nutshell. Rob once asked a brilliant question. Rob super fan. Thank you for asking. This is very smart because culturally we, it's a very different thing, but what is the difference between violence? Why is violence so celebrated in our films? I just raved about the relics, not even good. And it's super violent. And why are we so scared of sex and nudity and stuff? And I mm-hmm. think what it comes down to is when I see Rob and Tony topless, down some long corridor where the devil is coming for her. I get what that's supposed to do to my brain from a storytelling standpoint, but all I see is an actor naked for no reason and what went into that. I can promise you that if you go through all the deaths that have ever happened on screen in Hollywood history...
1: Yeah, there were 36 of them in time and Sudden Death Alone. And Sudden Death Alone.
2: If you go back through all of them, you will find... Maybe a few stories, but hardly any stories of people complaining about being exploited personally. Right. If you go through all the nude scenes and all the boobs that you've ever seen in a movie, there will be at, at least half. And I think that's an extremely conservative figure. At mm-hmm. least half of them are people being exploited for their bodies, for their sex appeal, for the naughtiness of the thing. And that is a hurtful, ugly, harmful thing. That's a dark thing that Mm -hmm. goes on in Hollywood. And this film has just too much of that. And it made it me really hard to get into it. That and in the end, it's just the plot of The Omen, except not nearly as good, without a child, without a loving father. Instead, you've got Schwarzenegger, who's a hard-ass detective, who becomes a believer in all this stuff. Uh, Kevin Pollack helps when he's on screen, but he doesn't help enough. um,
1: I felt exploited uh, when uh, the movie The Musketeer came out because I felt like uh, that was taking a story that's a lot of fun <laughs> and just making it feel, uh, making me feel like, I, wait, I, I don't, why do I hate this? I'm supposed to like this story. This is a dumb movie. Uh, but that's The Musketeer for you.
2: That's The Musketeer for you, baby.
1: Um. yeah so he of course uh, the
2: premise of the musketeer and the point of the musketeer sorry I'm bidding on something on ebay this is a shameful show (laughs) it's a shameful show and I'm ashamed but F it I'm doing it I want to win this thing so it's you know y'all can you share can you share what it is that you're trying to win if I we'll see we'll see if I win or lose we'll know in a couple minutes all
1: right next week next week uh, and this Peter Hyams show is going to go
2: over two hours which shows you he's sort of an epic guy more than I thought, more than I wanted yeah. even, but whatever. Yeah. What are we talking about? The Musketeer. Here, the Musketeer. I'll, I'll boil it down for you. Crap version of the Musketeer. Joel, what Joel's saying in his segwayedness is spot on. <laughs> this film has no yeah. reason to exist except for the fight choreography of then hottest guy on the planet, uh, Pooh Chingwei. What's his name? I'm gonna. I already screwed it up, so I might as well just. Screw uh, it
1: up yeah, it is. Uh... The guy Uh, who did the uh, Matrix
2: films, the guy who did uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, he does the sword fighting fight choreography in this version of The Three Musketeers. And Mm -hmm. on its own, I still don't love it because it's so off the wall crazy, which the sword fighting in The Three Musketeers really should be traditionally swashbuckling and not... There's this scene where they're sword fighting on on ladders that are like tipping over and it's crazy and yeah. it's it is diverting but the part they got the part they screwed up was the Alexandre Dumas part. How do you how do you screw that up? We're still waiting for an ultimate version of Three Musketeers that isn't dramatically compromised in some sort of way. We're still waiting. Mm-hmm. And that's stupid because that it, it's it's super you know Richard Lester didn't do it I'm sorry with respect to you baby boomers who love that crap um it's not bad but it isn't good the Stephen herrick charlie sheen keeper sutherland one that's that gets the job done but it's not good the you know why the closest thing you get is man in the iron mask and even that's like that's i don't even like that one um a Sound of Thunder is
1: the final movie on our... Oh, Musketeer, uh, to no one's surprise, comes in at 15. At the, the worst film on this list, because it just... It it, is, I uh, get why
2: Hyams had to do it, and he does it yeah. with his usual visual flair, but the film has nothing but visual flair, and mm-hmm. it's an hour and 40 minutes. It's this epic thing told in this tiny, stupid way where the only thing happening in it of any value is a gimmick. That That yeah. is... That is a film and a story that sold down the river for commercial Mm. reasons and as you'd expect it was a big bomb
1: right do you remember when edward burns was trying to be it when they when they were trying to make edward burns a thing like he was was a good actor he's a good actor but they were gonna like oh well we got to put him in like an action film because we got (laughs) to get him in like a tight shirt and stuff like that well they uh in a sound of thunder a single mistake in the past, by uh, passed by a time travel company in the future, has devastating and unforeseen consequences.
2: This is a uh, Michael Creighton rip-off story, although it's a very famous uh, "Sound of Thunder." Ray Who's Brad- the who wrote it? The short story. Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. Okay, so it's a very famous Ray Bradbury story, but it's very. Uh, this is this is a cheap version of Jurassic Park. Peter Hyams, Ed Burns, this film bankrupted Franchise Pictures, which is the worst offshoot movie shingle in the history of movies. They made Driven with Sylvester Stallone. They made uh, Battlefield Earth with John Travolta. They basically took Mm -hmm. old aging stars... Uh, they did a movie with Schwarzenegger that was equally bad. I don't remember what it was. They took old aging stars and workmanlike filmmakers like Hyams and they stuck them in their old aging star passion projects, which were very expensive and that nobody wanted to see and that none of them made money. And this was the one where it was finally like, we're, we're halfway through this movie. Franchise pictures is no more. You can't have any more money. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this thing's dead. That's that's the kind of production we're talking about. So, given that, it it's remarkable how decent and watchable it is. Because Warner Brothers, a couple years later, kind of finished the effects in standard definition on computers very cheaply. They all look terrible. But, but the film visually was told in a way and storyboarded in a way that even when you plunk the bad visual effects in it, the storytelling... Uh, gets told. It works visually. Um, but the story is this, these, this high concept place to make money um, takes these guys back into time, thousands and thousands of years to dinosaurs, and they allow them to hunt them and kill them. And it's just one dinosaur that they keep killing over and over and over again with these, with mm-hmm. these uh, ice, ice bullets made of ice so that it doesn't leave any trace of technology behind. And it's the same dinosaur. The di- this dinosaur is about to get stuck in a bog at right as a volcano erupts and kills him. So they just keep shooting him, and then he falls down in the bog, dead, and then they leave, and then the volcano erupts and covers up the crime of, of history that they're doing. But of course, Joel, something goes wrong one of those times mm-hmm. that they go in. Mm-hmm. Something happens where the guns don't work right or the timeline gets changed and they get sent back at not exactly the perfect time. And there's this big sort of T-Rex attacks action sequence, and the future, 2055, I believe this film takes place in, starts changing. And Bradbury's story, I won't ruin the details for you, it's out there. The way the future changes is weirdly specific. (laughs) And (laughs) And they capture that on film to the degree that they can with this non-effects budget for this big effects movie. Right. Um, I find it, it's not crap, it's watchable. Ben Kingsley plays the evil business guy. Um, Catherine McCormick, I want to say, is in it. She's pretty decent. You know, she's a good actor. Ed Burns is a good actor. So McCormick and Burns, well, they're kind of doing the heavy lifting dramatically in the film. And they're, they're doing what they do best, which is keeping this stuff grounded in something meaningful and playing the reality of it and if they weren't doing that this film would be a laughable disaster as it is it's a sad you feel sorry for it disaster and i that's not great but that's better than the alternative so this right. film is right. what
1: number 14
2: hey the penultimate yep.
1: The penultimate. on the Peter Hyams list yep.
2: and he's done a few since and like I said he did a few before um, and it's sad um, to end with because this was a film with some real ambition if it had a big effects budget it would have it, it still would have been a flop probably but it would have been a flop that was accomplished and that mm-hmm. we thought but the fact that it, it didn't come out when it was supposed to it came out years later it only came out on video uh, the video effects looked pretty good on old TVs but looked terrible on new TVs so, you know, it looked terrible in high definition because they're not even really rendered in high definition. Right. Um, right. But I like high ems and I can feel it. I can feel it working. I, I know what that was supposed to look like. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so I, I don't mind it so much. And I like a good. Yeah. Radberry, you know, I like a good don't step on a butterfly in the past sort a tail. That's fun. Boy, yep. the cars in 2055 are going to suck, though, you guys buy all the yeah. cars you can now. Because it's weird, yellow, dune buggy city in
1: 2055. No, dune buggy city, oh, no. Sum up what
2: Peter Hunt is. It feels like the highways, first of all, it feels like the street out front of this building is a highway, which isn't. This is a street. The cars are going way too fast. And it feels like all the cars are like those airport trolleys and things. Those weird cars that are only at airports. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm t- saying? Like, they're not real. They're weird. Yep. They don't look like anything that we would we would evolve into naturally. So, Indeed. yeah, if they were yellow oh, doom right. buggies, hey, if they were talking yellow doom buggies with personalities, they might actually had something here. Oh, my God. That would have been amazing.
1: Um, something to think about. So, 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 you know, we talked at the top of the show, we talked about Peter Himes, and we're in this. this I won. Uh, these These workmen. Awesome. These workmen-like directors <laughs> that... Interested now oh, we wanna, we got to end this show we yeah, spent we way too long talking about some mediocre films yeah i know um sorry and uh but we but you know we wanted to we wanted to honor like these workman directors who uh uh that that you know they're not the auteurs but they are they are entertainers and mm-hmm. there is value in entertaining sum up if you could real quick uh peter Hyams and his place sort of in in cinema, like what, what made you want to go, let's do, let's talk about Peter. Well,
2: I really like those early films, obviously. I think my enthusiasm for them was pretty obvious and I do really appreciate a filmmaker who has a hidden sense of style that perhaps in the, in the, with no art films to his credit whatsoever. You know what I mean? I I like Mm -hmm. a guy who has Mm -hmm. a sense of style that you can track consistently and that he, gets in there every time you know what i mean like i really dig that he is not a he's not a guy without his own cinematic voice he just has used it for these for these rather straightforward story purposes and that's yeah. not like as i say that's not that not only is that not bad that's great um that sense of cinema even in something like running scared or even in something like the presidio that Dedication to the craft in those sorts of films is something that I lament that is missing almost entirely from today's films. You see it somewhat in genre films. You see it in horror in particular. You see where the style really is still alive when it comes to the cinematography and the the direction. Not all horror, but you know, lots of it. That's a place where you're working on a small enough level and you've got a built-in enough audience that you can do some stuff. Uh, these are these sort of straight to netflix things and these standard biopics and stuff they lack cinematic style and that's something that peter has in spades man and delivers in a great way that that doesn't distract from the story that helps propel the story and connecting those dots is, is a fun thing so he's a he's he's just he's a in this category he's one of the best And he's a guy who I've listened to through the years talk about his own work and his his unashamedly enthusiasm about him. And yet his his pragmatical way of looking at the world of Hollywood and movie making is very, very cool. So I think he's a cool guy worth celebrating.
1: Let's uh, you know, if you haven't checked out some of these films, just just the tops of the list here. The Presidio, Narrow Margin, Running Scared, Outland, Capricorn One. 2010, the year we made contact. Well, those like I said, I, and I well think I'm going to stick time. to this.
2: Yep. Capricorn One and Outland are going to be my next double feature on our show coming up. So if you want to do yep. some, yeah, that'll be
1: coming up in a few. Yep.
2: And you haven't seen those? Check them out, and then we'll all react to them together. That'll be fun. Because I, I should switch them now that I've really said my piece on them. But hey, <laughs> let us let me let's. <laughs> no, because no, we didn't get, say get, much about them. Let, we let me get hear to, what the we get team to has better. to say. Yep. You know what I mean? That'll be neat. Indeed sure.
1: uh, All right folks You can reach out to us At the Movie Show With Joel and Ryan page On Facebook And on YouTube If you're watching The the, uh, the video feed on this You can uh, like And subscribe to that That would be uh, Greatly appreciated At Ask Joel and Ryan On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok And uh, at Ask Joel and Ryan At gmail.com If you want to email us directly All right everybody Take care of yourselves uh, We will see you all Next week Bye Bye
0: thank you for listening to the movie show with joel and ryan remember all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people institutions or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with unless explicitly stated none of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive and now here's the producers circa 1982 to play us out